Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Very, very good to be spending time with you today. What's what is today's date in the Gregorian count? I'm looking here, January fourth. January 4th, 2024. I say this because this show is coming to you live, live from the Holy Land, day 1,007 of our defensive war against the barbarians, the barbarians who circle our borders and want nothing, nothing healthy, nothing nourishing, nothing holy, nothing moral from Forget the Jews for you and for theirs. Um, It's not a secret, not a secret that this show is intensely personal. I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. Um, I grew up in a house, a TMI house, and found the perfect outlet for my TMI personality. So we're going to talk today about what it feels like, what it feels like to be living under under the umbrella of war, under the umbrella of, shall we say, secular uncertainty, what it feels like to have to conduct our lives to parent, to adult, to wife, to husband, to co-work, It's the things that movies are made of, but movies aren't real, unless you live, of course, in Israel. Let's start by saying thank you for staying up in the United States and Canada. You're listening in with us today. We have India with us this morning. Uganda, back again. Boketov Eretz Yisrael. Group hug, group hug, right? Sweden is with us and Germany, and there's a rumor that South Africa is on the line. I hope I hear soon that they are indeed listening in. So this morning, um, my husband said to me on his way out to synagogue, Thursday morning, shul, we're going to read the Sefer Torah this morning. And he said to me, are you ready for your show? And I looked at him and I said, I I must be ready for the show. I am not ready for the show. I'm never ready unless I'm sitting and talking with friends because it's hard here. It's hard. This is the upbeat show. We're always laughing. We're always finding something humorous to kind of tune into, to chuckle with. And since October 7th, the brutality, the ruthlessness, and the ceaselessness of the barbarity that has been visited upon us is something that, what are we ready for? And I must confess, in this TMI moment, I'm up this morning since approximately 2.10. It's now a little after 7 a.m. in Israel, and I'm up since 2.10, and usually I'm such a cool cookie. But for those listening in from Israel, my sisters, my brothers, for those of us with children on the various fronts, 
you could be good three days in a row, four days in a row, and somehow night five you don't sleep. You know there's a mission. You know that your baby, your baby is out there and you cannot protect your baby. You can daven for your baby. You could pray your baby comes home and picks up on your dreams for your baby. And I'm up since 2.10 from last night. Yesterday, I slept until 3.40. So we got to get the act. We have to get the sleeping act together. And then, of course, I did get a note from my baby post-mission back safe and sound love you mommy how do we keep upbeat how do we keep our hearts light how do we function how do we serve as lights as a light unto the nations when we seem to be surrounded with darkness and I'm going to tell you how I will tell you how there's a methodology. We have the blueprint. You all know. You've listened to this show before. You know the drill. Our holy Torah commands simcha, joy. Asma, what? You can command someone to be happy? I'm just not feeling it, babe which is why it's a commandment. Notice there's no commandment to eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs or Ben and Jerry's. I don't need to be commanded that. But when we cannot keep up with the funerals and cannot keep up with the shivers and we cannot keep up with the hospital visits, we have to kick in our holy Jewishness the blessings of our birth, the blessings of our birthright and grab accountability, responsibility, rising to the challenges that lay out in front of us and gloaming on to faith, emuna. When I was recently in South Africa, I had coffee with a very, very dear friend. And my dear friend is not observant, very Jewish-centric, very Jewish personality, very, very um, culturally Jewish, but not at all immersed in observing the mitzvot. And over our cup of tea, he was absolutely reigning morose over the Israeli government and the Israeli lack of culture and the hopelessness and what's going to be and how terrible it is and how can we in the economy and on and on. I can just tell you, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. And I looked at him and I asked him a simple question. If you chose 
not to complain. I mean, last I looked, he wasn't a member of the Knesset and he wasn't getting a weekly phone call from the prime minister's residence to ask him for his opinions. He was opining this in a small coffee shop in Johannesburg. And I said to him, with all that energy, if you would choose to shut your eyes, to close your eyes to all those things that are bothering you, and just think about what's good. Will the political t- situation change? He said, well, well, no. I said, what will change? And he said, I will change. We can hang out. Hang out. Lowell, mire, roll around in the muck and the mire and the, 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 the pigsty sty of depression. And just sort of crawl our way through the daily gloom. And nothing will change in the world. Except we will be our personal worsts. I don't know how many listening in today are a parent. If you are a parent and you want to talk about it. How much nachas you're getting from parenting, how much joy, or how much not so much joy you're getting. Drop me a note, Andrea, at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I always like to hear your opinions, your thoughts. But we see. We see what our children take in, what they copy, when they emulate. Did you ever hear your child speak cattily or be mean and sheepishly recognize yourself in your child's voice and mannerism? Have a client, 87 years old, needs to go into the hospital for surgery, and this 87-year-old woman is crying like a child. And so bleak, and it's, it's not serious surgery, but she's bringing the lessons and the sadness and the despair and the, 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 the absolute despondency of her eight-year-old self being told by a father, nothing is worth living for. It's all bleak. My gosh, another 80 years with that lesson that she chooses to keep? Sometimes those of us who are living, living, living in a situation that we do not have a lot of control over on a global, in a global manner, we have enormous controls. There's a wonderful scene in the movie, oh my gosh, it's I think in the 1970s, early, Cher and Nicolas Cage, the the movie was Moonstruck, that was it, Moonstruck. And Nicolas Cage is such a, blue guy and he's a funk and he's missing a hand. He's really quite a creep. And at one point in the movie, Cher, a very young Cher, smacks him across the face and she says, get over it. You know what? We can choose to get over the minutia, the minutia that is bringing us down and choose to look for the good, to grab gratitude, 
to say, what do I want my children to emulate today? What will it take for me to recover at least today from 2.10 a.m. anxiety? Perhaps be more mindful of the food I eat. Make certain I exercise. No question that I'm going to pray. Grab a little culture. If you need therapy, get therapy. We have controls. What I say to my friend is that the cost of looking at the bright side, the brighter side, or shutting our mouths when we want to just complain and carp, the cost of that is absolutely free. And I encourage all of us, I know that today I have a lot of healing work to do and we can do it together. You know what? Obviously, obviously, I uh, come from a secular background. I love film. I'm ashamed at how much I love film, although I rarely go now. And I remember it became sort of a cultural joke. Uh, Sally Field receiving an Oscar for, I'm trying to remember, it was for the film Places in the Heart or Sybil. I think it was Places in the Heart. And she grabbed the Oscar and she was saying, they like me. They like me. And it became sort of a joke because her very sincere moment was really kind of cringy. Um, we have a different <laughs> reality here in Israel. They hate us. They hate us. It doesn't take a Claudine Gay. It doesn't take a, oh my gosh, we can go on and on. She's like the, <laughs> she's the icon uh, of the moment. They're going to hate us. You know what makes me cringe? Tolerance museums. Courses and programs to try to uproot anti-Semitism, to expunge that from the human soul. I just think about how much could be built up in Israel, how much housing, we could lower housing, cheaper housing, build more medical schools, provide more services for all of the Jews who will bravely come home. And instead, we put money into courses to teach anti-Semitism. You know, it's very funny. They say, what is the best for a criminal? The best school to become a better criminal is for him to go to jail. He really becomes, he gets a, he gets a PhD in how to be a better bank robber, a better criminal, a better um, whatever. So the same thing, we can teach courses on anti-Semitism. We can teach those who hate us how to hate us better. So there's always going to be people who hate us. I promise you, there's nothing you can do about it. Don't hate us. Take a look at all the Nobel Prizes we won. Look at all the doctors we provide. Look, we are the savers of the world. Forget about it. Forget about it. Who you are, my Jewish brother and sister, does not depend, it's not defined, it does not rely on who hates you today, January 4th. Let's start investing, investing friendship and world health and spiritual growth 
and cultural nourishment with those who love us and who we in turn can love back. That caring, that health, that spiritual cleanliness is far more powerful than anything that can happen to us as a result of a pro-Palestinian march in Name the City. I realize my notes are confused because I want to go, I want to continue on this Simcha streak. Um, but my notes tell me that I must share with you. I said at the beginning, I'm going to tell you what it feels like. And I know the producer of this program and I, we speak so frequently about our shared experience as moms to Chayolim, to IDF soldiers. And we both work and we both parent and we both have to function and be out there. And there are things that we don't think about. There are things that I cannot think about if I'm going to get through my day without walking into walls. If I'm going to get through my day and be everything I can to clients who depend upon me and children who need, and grandchildren who want to see a perky grandmother. And yet, I would be remiss if I did not share with you a farewell letter written by Sergeant Major Ben Sussman, 22 years old, fell. I think it was last week. No, he fell last month. It was just his Shloshim, the 30th day. I didn't know this. No, it's not true that I didn't know this. I didn't want to know this. That apparently our soldiers write a letter. Every IDF soldier who goes into combat writes a letter to be given to his family in case he's killed in action. I guess I kind of knew it, but I don't want to know it. The same way as I believe that every married soldier has a um, provisional um, certificate of um, divorce, what we call in, in, in Hebrew the get, in case he is missing in action, kidnapped or missing, that his wife can be free to remarry. Anyway, um, this letter was written by 22 years old, a baby. A baby who hasn't started his life named Ben Sussman. And it so reflects the heartbeat of our holy Chayalim. And it's my honor to share this with you. When it was sent to me, the person who sent it to me said, he died defending his humanity. That's who we are. In the words of Ben Sussman. I am writing this message to you on my way to base. If you are reading this, something has probably happened to me. As you know me, there's probably no one happier than me right now. I was just about to fulfill my dream soon. I am grateful for the privilege to defend our beautiful land and the people of Israel. 
Even if something happens to me, I don't allow you to sink into sadness. I had the privilege to fulfill my dream and my destiny. And you can be sure that I am looking down on you with a big smile. Perhaps I'll sit next to grandfather and bridge some gaps. Each one will share their experiences and what has changed between wars. And we'll talk a bit about politics. And I'll ask him for his opinion. If, God forbid, you are sitting Shiva in mourning, turn it into a week of friends, family, and joy. Have food. Definitely meat, beer, sweet drinks, seeds, tea, and of course, mama's cookies. Laugh. Listen to stories. Meet my friends you haven't seen yet. Seriously, I envy you. I would like to be there to see everyone. Another very, very important point. If God forbid I fall captive, alive or dead, I am not willing for a soldier or civilian to be harmed because of any deal for my release. I do not allow you. I do not allow you not to conduct a campaign or protest or anything like that. I am not willing for terrorists to be released in exchange for me in no way, shape or form. Please do not twist my words. I'll say it again. I left home without even being called up to reserve duty. I am filled with prize, with pride and a sense of duty. And I always said that if I have to die, I hope it will be in defense of others and the country. From the song Guards of the Walls, quote, Jerusalem, I have placed the guards that the day will come when I will be one of them. Ben Sussman, 22 years old. May his memory be a blessing and may his blood be avenged. That's who we are. I don't know what life is like in Uganda or India or Sweden or Germany. I'm looking. I have a little bit of knowledge of Canada and the United States. Our friends listening in South Africa. There are 22-year-old children, 22-year-olds who are still finding themselves out, living the meanness, M-E-N-E-S-S, of their existence. And we have Israeli children who at the age of 18 step up to the proverbial spiritual plate and create miracles for every one of us listening in. So again, we ask, how can you dance in the face of tragedy? The simple answer is that this is war and you walk into a battle zone. If you go in there and you are crying and you say, I'm scared and you say, I can't, and you can say, I'm frightened, you have lost before that first bullet. A war against terror is like no other war. Because the whole point is to terrify. 
we who allow ourselves to be terrified will be victims. I'm going to say it's very difficult what I'm about to say. But those of us who remain calm, upbeat, optimistic, and with our eyes on tomorrow and what we are building and what we are providing and what we are safeguarding, we're the heroes. It is very, very hard. So how do you stay upbeat in the face of tragedy? Brutal crimes. So, so horrific. We can't even repeat them. I have never, ever on this show repeated what you all know, what you have all read, what you have all seen. I don't have to recall for anyone's edification what they did. On a show a while back, well, it was quite a while, I have no recollection, I told the story of meeting a woman who was in what appeared to be a very odd marriage. It wasn't, it wasn't a typical marriage. She was much, much younger than her husband. Her husband was, I believe he was a Bob of a Hasid, a Hasid from the, um, from the, the, the community of Bobov. And she was a Balat Shuva. She was a recently religious woman uh, who had been married many years to a non-Jew, had children who were, you know, intermarried and very not. And she was married to this man. And we met, at a, I remember it was a Pesach, a Passover vacation. We, we were at a yeshiva and we met and we became friends. And we really, <laughs> in our world of womanly TMI, we shared, we shared, we shared, we shared. And she shared with me that her husband was very quiet. And it was a few months into her marriage where she thought, I must have made a mistake. This is not working for me. And it was early enough that she thought, well, you know, if we get divorced, I mean, it's really nothing lost. Uh, it'll be a little sad, a little awkward, but there's no children. There's no assets. I don't want to live my life with a man like this. And suddenly, I'm repeating this story to those of you who have been, you know, faithful listeners. I hope you're not getting bored. And one Friday, no, one week, not long into her marriage, this man's adult daughter, a single woman, died. He had one child from a very unhappy previous marriage, and his daughter died under terrible circumstances. And alone he sat Shiva. They didn't know a lot of people. The community rabbi came. I think they managed to get a minion, a prayer quorum in the mornings in his home. But they were very, very isolated. And Friday night she was frightened. My gosh, there's not going to be anybody in the house. I'm going to make, we're going to be all alone for Shabbos in the middle of Shiva. You don't sit Shiva on Shabbos. Right before Shabbos, you light your candles and you are immersed in the Shabbat. And then Motzei Shabbos, Saturday night, 
after the Havdalah ceremony, you resume your sitting Shiva. And she was terrified. And she set the table. And he stood to make the Sabbath Kiddush and began singing, singing Shalom Aleichem, the song welcoming the Sabbath. He sang Eshet Chayil, the song to the woman of valor. He sang in a robust voice. And then he washed his hands and he made Hamotzi, the prayer over the bread. And then in the middle of the meal, he began to sing what we call Shabbos Zmiros, the Sabbath songs to bring light and life. And in the midst of his songs, and you wouldn't have known it from his voice, tears were streaming down his face. But he sang and he sang and he had never sung so beautifully despite the tears falling into his beard. And it was at that moment that my new friend shared with me that not only would she stay married to him, she would give tzedakah and thank God for having merited to be a partner of such a man and that more than her husband, he was now her teacher. Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler writes in his book, his, his books, it's a three-volume set, I believe it's a three-volume set, called Mechtav Me'Eliyahu, Letter from Eliyahu. And he talks about years before Gandhi, being the change we want to see in this world. Being the joy when you don't feel joyful. Being the kindness when you don't feel kind. Giving charity when you're feeling miserly. Because eventually the soul will imitate the actions. So those of us listening in today, if we can make another human life better today in the midst of sadness, in the midst of fear, if we can reach out, where can I spread my light? Who can I help? What can I do? What avocados can I pick? Who can I visit in the hospital? Who can I bake for? Who can I sing to? We will not be victims of terrorism. We will be celebrants and we will be observers of simcha shel mitzvah, which means so simply joy in doing the mitzvah. It's not mindless. It's not lazy. It's being the best we can be, uniting, uniting Shemayim and Aretz, heaven and earth bringing peace while our holy, holy soldiers are physically doing the labor. All right, 
All right, we're watching the clock. Let's see. I think I've done enough about, uh, we'll, we'll go back to this again and again. If you have any questions about what we can do, telling jokes, we can dance, we can recognize and focus on everything that's good, my South African friend. It doesn't mean that everything, I don't have to be the arbiter of what's really wonderful and not wonderful in the economy. I can show gratitude and you know what I can do? Look to the future. Now, I think I also mentioned last week, let's see, this page, do we need this page anymore? Uh, No, this page makes me sad. No more. Okay. Last week, I spoke about that I was in South Africa, and I don't know if I told this story. (laughs) It's an age thing. I don't really remember. But um, there was a woman at the Sabbath Kiddush uh, after our prayers in synagogue in South Africa. Correct me if I'm wrong. They call it the bracha. It's called a bracha. I don't know why. It's kind of say, oh, oh, I'll see you with the bracha. Anyway, um, lovely lady who I've met a few times in South Africa said to me at the table as I was kind of downing some fish and a whiskey that I was hoping looked like ginger ale. And she said to me, Andrea, just tell me, are we going to win I must tell you, I I think I expressed this before, but I I was gobsmacked. I cannot tell you anyone in this country who who actually thinks in those terms. There's no, are we going to win? We have no choice. Of course we're going to win. For those of us who are religious, who are observant, who are heaven centric, we know. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. But I had to remember, as Rabbi Dessler would tell me, to reach down, reach down deep, and find your kindness. Because I wanted to scream, what the hell kind of question is that? And instead, I said to her, where are you getting your news from? Clearly, all of our friends listening in, those listening in, I'm looking at the list again. I know that because you love Israel, you're checking the news every day. You're checking, you're checking, and you're listening, you're reading your local papers. You're looking at the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Um, You know, I don't, I don't know what the papers are in Canada, um, in Germany, in Sweden. If you're listening in from France, you're looking at Le Monde. It's entertainment. I am going to put in the show notes today, I'm going to do give you a gift. Really, Andrea? You're giving us a gift? Yes. I'm going to put in the show notes an email, a, a link, a link to a news source, it's out of Israel. It's not a religious news source. It's not a politically connected, it's not from the Likud or the Labour or anywhere else. Oh, I see we also have the UK with us today and China has joined us. It sends out news releases two to three times a day. So you don't have to run and check every day those who are not your friends, those who do not care about 
your health, your future, your children's well-being. I can't remember off the top of my head. Let me just, uh, I'll check this out, what the name of this news source is. You will sign up. It is free. They want you to hear the news from Israel, or as I like to say, from the front row of unfolding Jewish history. And it gives you, remember the old dragon, the old dragnet line? The facts, ma'am, just the facts. And it gives you the facts. It gives you a synopsis of what's happening in the south around the, Ga- the Gaza area, what's happening in the north on our northern border, what's happening in the West Bank, what's happening in Yerushalayim, what's happening politically. It'll even toss in a little weather report now and then. And it's all you need to know. You will be informed. You will be a source of great information and health to those who are looking to you. And you know who you are. Those of you who love Israel, your friends are calling you. I'm so nervous. I'm so scared. You'll be able to give them. You'll be able to give them the skinny as it is. So I'm going to send you that link today. It'll be on the show notes. Once we, let me just see here what the name of this uh, site is. I will send the link. It is called Israel News Highlights. And um, you can thank me later. Okay. And the other thing is that um, when you're reading it during these difficult days, I am begging you. If you are getting your news sources from any of those aforementioned papers, including Fox News, CNN, uh, Sky News, any of that, let me just tell you something. You are feeding a cancer. You do not need all of their opinions. You need the facts. You need the facts coming from the Holy Lands, and you are feeding a cancer that TMI, and it is not based on loving you. So, all right, Hamas philosophy. Just in case you didn't know, from the Holy... Oh, by the way, you should follow Douglas Murray. If you're looking, gee, Andrew, where can I get some some facts from somebody who says it in a non-religious way? Check out Douglas Murray, okay? Um, He will tell you that all civilians, but primarily children are tools of Hamas. And you know, you see this, you see the marches and you see them saying what Israel is wreaking upon the poor citizens of Gaza. Please, every time a home is destroyed in Gaza or a civilian building is targeted, everyone is so outraged. What's happening? I will tell you this from my son. I will tell you this from my son's friends. I will tell you this from every chayal, every soldier I speak with. Every home in Aza is a terrorist stronghold. They are not targeting civilians. Civilians die because of what they brought down on their community. Children. You know, I don't know how many of you are aware of this. Let me share. If you're not listening to this station, which really is where you should check in every day, Israel News Talk Radio, you will get a news update on this station from really the Holy Staff. 
Just as an example, they saw a woman in the middle of a bombed out neighborhood sitting in a wheelchair. She was decrepit and sitting in a wheelchair whose heartstrings are not pulled by a woman abandoned by those who were supposed to be taking, taking care of her. They left her sitting there, right? The rules don't apply. Our boys went toward her to help her because that's how they were raised. And of course, a terrorist popped out, popped out from under her wheelchair and assaulted. I'm just, I don't even know what I'm talking off the top of my head here. Assaulted our soldiers. Every UN school has rocket-propelled grenades underneath the school desks. Places of worship. They know the Israeli army. They know what will happen to those listening in to your communities, what they will say from the pulpits in India, Germany, Sweden, Uganda, Canada, and the U.S. Look at those evil Israelis surrounding and entering a mosque. So we don't do it. They use their schools, their hospitals, their nurseries. Even those who come out with white flags. We have made terrible mistakes against our holy own because of the depravity. The depravity of the filth that we find ourselves up against. One side uses civilians as human shields, including old ladies in wheelchairs. The other side is trying to save us and protect the paren, sick, unparen, innocence of Gaza. So it is a little bit strange that Americans, certainly, especially young ones, are still condemning Israel. But I guess... They don't want to be confused with the facts. Just remember and share the word. Hamas started this. The real enemy is Hamas. All right. Um, my gosh, I have so many news. Here's good news. Well, I'm just looking. We got to get into our devartors. Here is very good news. Nefesh Benefesh. Well, you know that I'm a big Nefesh Benefesh fan. Did not exist in my day. Oh, boy, if only Nefesh and Nefesh had existed, I'd have a car, I would have had a refrigerator. Not so much. Apparently, um, in all of 2023, 3,000 new Olim, 3,020 new Olim have come to Israel. A new Olim are immigrants. And since... Um, the war started. Let me just see here. According to this, now, 200 have arrived since, um, well, let's just say just since December, 720. Since, uh, anyway, since October, since October 7th, almost a thousand new from North America have come. This is an incredible piece of information. And they're settling already. It's all over. You know, it's not like the old days. When I came to Israel, if you spoke English, you went to Renana, you went to Beit Shemesh. You went to Jerusalem, and maybe you went to Efrat. Now, this is a new breed of brave American, for sure. They're going to outlying communities. They really are being halutzim, pioneers in communities they're building up. And my question to you listening in, 
How long is it going to be until you get onto that Nefesh Benefesh website and just open up a portfolio? Prep yourselves. Nobody can say we didn't warn you. You know. All right. Let's see. We're going into divorce. My new, I am absolutely a groupie. Okay. I don't know. I mentioned Douglas Murphy, who really does have my heart. I don't think he's that interested in me. But anyway, um, Israeli government spokesman. You may have seen him, but not known his, not know his name. Adorable young guy with a little, you know, that little, the, the, the three-day, three-day, uh, what is it? The three-day growth on the chin. They look like really kind of, you know, cute. They get married with that now. Remember? I know my husband had to shave before the wedding. Not so much now. So anyway, his name is Elon Levy. Fantastic. Scruffy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, clever engineer. The scruffy look. Okay. All right. Clint Eastwood always had it, but that was like, you know, before he got the girl. All right. So Elon Levy, he's really, uh, he's, he's such a breath of fresh air. The Israeli government spokesman speaks in perfect, unaccented English, like me. And his response to, he said, but you know, what do you say? Hamas, they call themselves freedom fighters. And here is his response. I wish I had said this, but this is him. Freedom fighters, no one has the freedom to rape, no one has the freedom to burn, no one has the freedom to behead people, and no one has the freedom to torture and mutilate children in front of their parents. The October 7th massacre was a campaign of systematic extermination when Hamas death squads tried to hunt as many people as they could, to murder as many people as they could, as brutally as they could. And if that is your vision of liberation, you are a sick, sick person. There is no right to treat people with such utter barbarity. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You should stand by us as we fight for humanity and for basic human rights. Well, I think that was pretty succinct. All right. If you want me to send you that exact quote, um, please write me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, and I will be happy, happy to share that with you. Oh boy. All right. This week, I'm telling you, if you do not have a Munashalema, complete faith, after reading our holy Torah from the beginning of the year, from Bereshis, when we started to read, read the portion of Genesis, to now, and juxtapose it, lie it side by side with the events that we are bearing witness today. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what else to say for you. How it is that you can discover faith because it lines up beautifully. The Torah leaves us basically unprepared for its description of the events that are recorded in this week's portion. You know, when we last left the family of Israel, I wasn't in South Africa last week. I was home. It was, right, it was the week before. Um, last week's, the Torah portion was Vayechi. The Jews found themselves comfortable, affluent, protected, and settled well in the land of Goshen. I mean, come on. <laughs> Do I have to hit you over the head? 
The Torah does not describe to us the process in which the situation so radically changed. How the comfortable, entitled Jews of Goshen became servants and slaves. It only tells of a new king who didn't know Yosef. And for reasons that are really not spelled out in the Torah, he became a hater, a persecutor of the Jews. So the Torah, according to Rabbi Wine, Beryl Wine, the Torah seems to indicate that this is almost a natural state of affairs to be expected. The Egyptian exile begins on a very high note, right? The brothers, they're royalty. And yet it, it deteriorates into unrecognizable sorrow, into indeed genocide against our people, and ends with, yes, a miraculous redemption. The Torah, interestingly enough, it doesn't, you know, hang out discussing motives for how this pattern of events unfolds. What did we do wrong? Why did Paro hate us? What were the economic and social factors of the time that allowed such a dramatic worsening of the Jewish position in Egypt? The Torah doesn't ask the questions. Why? Because the Torah wants us to understand this is the way it is. This is how it happens in human history. And specifically to the nation of the Jews. That all these attempts of historians and sociologists and builders of tolerance museums explain the irrational events and behavior is completely futile. Babylonia, Spain, France, Germany, Eastern Europe, Muslim, Middle East. It all goes back, direct line to this Torah portion. We're also unprepared to recognize the savior of Israel in the humble person of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. We're told he was miraculously saved from the dangerous waters of the Nile by the daughter of Paro, and he was raised in the royal court. He lived a life which was seemingly not at all connected to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. And yet, his Jewish neshama, his soul, his pintalayir, that little spark that burns in the heart of even the most detached Jew, sympathizes with the brutalized Jewish slaves. Indeed, without even understanding himself, he defends them and has to flee for his life. We don't hear anything about Moses for the next 60 years. We really don't know what his education was like. We don't know much about his father. We learn a little bit about his mother. We don't know what his views were, what he liked to eat. 60 years later, he reemerges as a shepherd in Midian, married to the daughter of Yitro. My favorite is the anglicized Jethro. Let's call him Yitro. 
who's a local religious chief. And at the time, Yitro is still a pagan. Not exactly, as Rabbi Wine says, it's not exactly the resume that one would expect for the leader of Israel, who's going to be the greatest of all prophets and teachers of the human of the human experience. So where did this holiness and greatness stem from? How was it developed? Who were his mentors? What were his experiences? The Torah doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us any clue. It effectively points out that greatness so frequently comes from unexpected sources and from people and leaders who operate outside of the usual established circles. Indeed, perhaps those who do not attend an Ivy League center of learning. You know, this Torah portion completes the development of the Avot, the forefathers, and B'nai Yaakov, the sons of Yaakov. Now the Torah turns to our development with the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, as we just said. You know, in the space of only seven lines, seven, seven pesukim, we say in Hebrew, the Torah relates three incidents I hope you're going to go to shul this week and read your and listen to the Torah being read, in which Moshe championed the cause of justice, and we know Jews have been historically the champions of human rights, the champions of justice. Black Lives Matter, the women's movement, freedom for native peoples all over the world. Dig deep enough. Don't have to dig that deep. Jews are there. Jews are present. Jewish sensibility is all over the place. So in the first of these experiences, an Egyptian taskmaster is the, the word that the Torah uses. He's beating a Jew. So what happens? Moshe comes to his aid. In the second, I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to hurry it up here. Two Jews are fighting, and he comes to the aid of the weaker. And in the third incident, involving non-Jews, Yitro's daughters are saved from the shepherds by Moshe, even though he's in the midst of fleeing for his life. In each incident, Moshe is protecting the underdog without seeking any reward for his actions. Now, Nechama Leibovitch, in her studies in Shamot, she points out that these incidents are kind of brought together to prove her word, she, she uses the word actually, to prove the metal of the personality involved. Close quote. You know, at first, let's just assume he's motivated by feelings for his own people and their oppression. You know, as Rashi explains, Vayab is Sivlotom, he saw their hard labor. So he felt, he shared their distress. That's kind of understandable. In the second incident, perhaps he was disgusted by the, by the fighting among Jews, which we have come to call, I know you've heard it on this show, sinas chinam, blind hatred. Um, one interpretation of is the matter has become known. It's brought down by Rashi in the name of the Midrash. Moshe wondered why the Jews were singled out among the 70 nations to suffer such hard 
ships in slavery. And now he witnesses that we're disgusting to one another. We slander each other. We resort to character assassination. And he suddenly understands, quote, it became known. Maybe we deserved our punishment. Or maybe Moshe was motivated in the first two incidences by the possibility of gratitude and reward from his brothers. After all, we still don't know Moshe. But it's after that third incident, which involves no Jew, which takes place far, far away from his brothers when he's fleeing for his life from Paro, a time where he should be maintaining a super low profile. Still, he can't help himself. He defends the weak again. We recognize that his motivation is based on unselfishness and indeed pure Justice. In these days, Moshe grew up. He went out to his brothers and he saw their hard labor. The Rambam explains to us that now this is the moment he grows up in maturity and mind. Having suddenly discovered He was a Jew. He went out among them. He didn't hide from them. He didn't separate his lot from them. He wanted to see their suffering. He could not bear to see them enslaved. And that is why he killed the Egyptian who was striking the Jew. You know, Rabbi Yehuda Nachshoni gives us a further insight into Moshe's personality. I love this. By expanding on both uh, something that the Ibn Ezra and the Abarbanel say. They both tell us that Moshe grew up in the palace of the Paro, and only by growing up in a palace could Moshe learn the elements of leadership and monarchy in order to develop the self-confidence, the courage. I think of it almost as a, a royal chutzpah and spiritual greatness necessary to lead B'nai Israel. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch explains that prophecy requires certain inherent characteristics. The prophet, what does a prophet have to be? What are the um, unifying traits? He has to be strong, wise, independent, definitely not one who follows the crowd. Prophets are not always that popular. Rabbi Hirsch says, only in a healthy, unweakened body does the mind attain that clarity that can draw from the well of Torah, that wisdom, and the self-confidence and independence, close quote. The Midrash further develops this character by relating that although Moshe grew up in the royal palace and became second in command, are you following this? He didn't become self-indulgent. He didn't become smug. Instead, he went out every day to see his brothers and joined them in back-breaking work. He interceded with Paro by suggesting that they could increase the efficiency of the slaves by allowing them to rest one day a week. And Paro agrees, and Moshe orders the Jews to rest every Shabbat. Before Moshe could merit speaking to God from the burning bush and, and actually be worthy of leadership and prophecy? There was some demonstration 
necessary to show that he had the character traits of honesty, spirituality, compassion, savlanut, patience. Being a shepherd teaches great patience. The Yalkut Ma'am Loaz explains that taking on pity, even on small animals with no one watching, is a sign that we indeed must treat every person as an individual and to pray for the people when they do wrong. Moshe Rabbeinu exhibits these characteristics before he can merit being a, pro- a prophet and a leader. We have so much to learn. You know, we're all united in the show, and we're going to sit around at our Shabbos tables this week. Let me share what I'm going to discuss with my family, and hopefully you will. The yichus, the distinguished and righteous pedigree of Moshe, was not even recorded. I said that at the beginning. Diane Moshe Swift, in his book, Moreshet Moshe, says, Who cares who his father was? At a time in life and death, every son and daughter of Israel must rise to the occasion and assume the height of responsibility. A tailor's son or a rabbi's son. Israel's teacher emerges from the home of an everyday Jewish father or mother. Let's all of us discuss this statement that every Jewish son and daughter must always be prepared to rise to the highest level of Judaism based on his or her own efforts. We don't have to rely on past family for yichus, for that pedigree. We have ourselves. Shabbat Shalom Umivorach from Jerusalem.